It's your fellow revolutionary, Jason Vreeke. And these are Tales of the Revolution. We tell stories of the real Jesus of Nazareth, the greatest revolutionary of them all. Today's episode is entitled International Man of Ministry. One time, some buddies of mine and I flew from California to New York City. We wanted to share Christ in the Big Apple. We passed out tracts and conversed with people. I even got into a civilized but heated debate with a Muslim street vendor. But let me back it up. When our friend Chris picked us up from JFK, he showed up in a Geo Metro. No joke. My friends Brian, Chris, and I were about 200 pounds apiece, and Nick wasn't much smaller. Christian was still a preteen, but Jonathan was six foot ten. That's six guys in an early 90s Geo Metro. And one of these guys was big enough to be in the NBA. Somehow we were able to fit into this little hatchback with our luggage for the weekend. So we started out, and it was spitting and sputtering the whole way. And Chris says, I should have gotten gas before I picked you guys up. I'm almost below the line. And I'm thinking, all this weight is only going to cause this little clown car to burn more gas. Now, New York City traffic is a phenomenon. Not just because of all the cars, but pedestrians show up in herds, making it impossible to get through some intersections. And I wonder how long until these fumes run out. It's already spitting and sputtering, and every time we see a gas station, the traffic is so bad, Chris can't get over. It wouldn't be long before we had to start pushing this thing. I asked Chris, because I'm in the back seat, how's that gas hand looking? He looks and he says, it's actually coming up. And then the spitting and sputtering stops and the car starts running smoothly. And we get to Chris's apartment with no problem. And when we get there, this little Geo has almost a quarter tank of gas. Revolutionary things happen when you step out and go to another place to share about the real Jesus of Nazareth. So later on in the subway, we're just doing our thing. We're handing out smileys, these little booklets that say, Smile, God loves you. And we see this guy with a knit cap on that reads, I love Jesus. And so we start talking to him. And it turns out he doesn't know a thing about Jesus. He says that he's just wearing this cap because it's 20 degrees outside. He's cold. But what I remember most were his wide eyes when he said out of nowhere, you probably won't believe what I'm about to tell you. My friend Chris said, go ahead. And this man explained to us how he remembered the very day he was born, even emerging from the birth canal. He was right. I didn't believe him. I thought he was crazy. But what Chris did next was utterly amazing. First, he told the guy that he did believe him. But then he said, that moment has led you to this moment. And now, that Jesus that's on your hat is calling out to you to experience your second birth. Chris explained the gospel to this man 
about how we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior who paid the price for our sins on the cross when He died. But then He rose from the dead, and that if we believe in this, we can have eternal life and experience a second birth called being born again. And then Chris asked him, Do you believe this? And the man, with tears welling up in his eyes, said, Yes, I believe. And then Chris said, Based on your faith, you've just been born again. Welcome to the family of God. Now you can remember your physical birth and your spiritual birth. So this guy gets really excited and he says, I just live out here across the street. My whole family needs to hear this. Can you talk to them? And Chris decided that he'd do it. So he went over to this guy's apartment and that man's entire family had an encounter with Jesus of Nazareth that would leave them changed forever. All of them became followers of Jesus. The greatest revolutionary of all has enlisted us to fight in a battle. But our battle is a spiritual one. The spoil, the souls of human beings. met Dan Wooding over a decade ago at the radio station. Here's a man who's traveled the world as an advocate for Christians and the cause of Christ. I was the first radio engineer and producer of his show called Front Page Radio, which is still on the air today. In those days, I had dubbed him the International Man of Ministry. I even made a really British and psychedelic sounding promo for Front Page Radio that was like Austin Powers meets the global mission field. It was never approved to air on the radio station. But nevertheless, here's Dan Wooding to give us some revolutionary storytelling. raised in England, and my dad finally became a pastor in the city of Birmingham in England, and um, I was raised there, but I broke my dad's heart because I always wanted to be a journalist, and uh, he kept saying to me, son, don't do it, they're wicked people, they drink, smoke, and swear, and they also tell lies about Christians, but I was okay to start with because my first job, Jason, was with the Billy Graham Association. Billy Graham had a newspaper in London called The Christian, and I managed to uh, get a job there. I was now married to Norma, and we had two kids. And so we moved to London in 1968, and uh, I got my first job in journalism. And I always remember my very first day, the editor called me in and asked me if I would go over to St. Paul's Cathedral in London to interview a lady called Coretta Scott King. And she was the widow of uh, the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And um, I was to try and interview her. And so I go over to the cathedral, 
found out that she was the first woman ever allowed to preach from the pulpit of St. Paul's, and um, she gave me a marvelous interview. I asked her if she wasn't afraid to die like her husband, you know, because he'd been assassinated, and she said, no, my kids are with me in this, and uh, I have to continue his work. And so that was a pretty interesting start to my career in journalism. And then suddenly, after a year, the paper got shut down, and I moved over into uh, secular journalism. And um, one of the first things I did was I was given an area of London called South Ealing to try and uh, get some stories there. I was on a paper called the Middlesex County Times, and the very first day I went to the only place of real interest in South Ealing, which was called the BBC Television Studios. That's where they actually filmed all the interior shots for Downton Abbey, because Downton Abbey wasn't heard of then. And so I asked the BBC press officer, they got me stories, I've just started on the local rag, and uh, she said, yeah, I've got a good story for you. She said, we've got a bunch of lunatics here called Monty Python's Flying Circus. Would you like to write the very first story about them? And so I had the rather amazing, uh, I don't know if it would be a privilege, but the amazing experience of actually launching Monty Python's Flying Circus on an unsuspecting public. And that very same day, I went down to a, a music store, the last call of the day, and I heard someone playing keyboards in there, and it turned out to be a musician who was just in his teens called Rick Wakeman. And Rick Wakeman um, is now probably the world's greatest rock keyboardist, but he, he came out and I chatted with him and found out that he had just done a couple of um, sessions, one with Cat Stevens, he played the piano on Morning Has Broken, and he also played uh, Mellotron on David Bowie's big hit Space Oddity. And so we became good friends, and I found out that Rick Wakeman was a believer, and uh, he had been baptized, was a Sunday school teacher, and uh, on this Friday, my wife and myself are going to see him with uh, John Anderson and Trevor Rabin, all former Yes uh, members, and we're going to see their concert. So I've known Rick for 50 years. I, I lasted for five years in the local press, Jason, and then I moved into the rather wicked world of the tabloids and uh, worked for two of Britain's most notorious tabloids and then also uh, for the National Enquirer. I believe, believe it or not, I did stories for the Enquirer from London, and if people would like to know if the stories are true in the Enquirer, my lips are sealed, I can't tell you. But um, what happened was that finally... A friend of mine came into a bar where I used to get drunk every night, Jason, called the Stab in the Back. And the Stab in the Back was a pretty dreadful bar for journalists in London, and they used to verbally stab each other in the back. And so um, I was in there one night, and my marriage was in a, in a mess. My drinking was out of control. And uh, this friend of mine had what I call a ministry of rebuking. And uh, this, uh, this ministry uh, included me, and he looked at me and he said, Dan, look at you. He said, I've known you for years. You're a good writer. You're spending all your time writing all this drivel. I'm going to challenge you to give up your life in, uh, in journalism uh, in London there and um, give your life back to the Lord here in the pub and then come with me to Uganda and we'll write a book together on Idi Amin and all the killings, something like 300,000 believers have been murdered by Idi Amin. 
I want you to help me write this book. And so I did it. I gave up my career in the tabloids and um, went to Uganda and met some of the most amazing, courageous Christians that had survived Idi Amin's Holocaust. We called the book Uganda Holocaust. And that was the turning point in my life. I made a commitment there in Uganda. I knelt by my bed in Kampala at a guest house where I was staying. And I just said, Lord, for the rest of my life, I want to help these believers, these heroes that have um, stood up for you despite a despot like Idi Amin. And so that was the turning point of my life. And uh, I began working with a man called Brother Andrew, and maybe some listeners have read the book God's Smuggler, which was his life story, taking Bibles into Russia and Eastern Europe during the Cold War, and um, eventually moved over to the U.S. and uh, started the new service, started traveling around the world, covering stories uh, for Brother Andrew. I went through a period there where things didn't go so well, and one of the staff members who was rather vindictive told me one day, uh, Dan, um, you know, you should just leave this work because you can't write and you've got no talent. And, you know, sometimes we believe people when they say things like that. And so for a couple of years, Norma and myself, my wife, had started Assist Ministries. And Assist, by the way, means aid to special saints in strategic times. But I did no journalism. I just did... Um, traveling, doing ministry in places like Cuba and Nicaragua and, and Costa Rica, and um, just went through this period of feeling God couldn't use a former tabloid journalist. And then one day I get a phone call from Billy Graham's press officer, and remember I'd once worked for Billy and uh, didn't think I'd ever be able to work with him again, and he asked me if I could immediately fly over to Moscow in Russia to be a writer with Billy Graham on his historic crusade there. It was the first time he'd been allowed to publicly preach the gospel and give an invitation for people to give their lives to Christ. And so I flew over to Moscow, and it was the most amazing experience of my life. And, and um, it was then that uh, when I came back to, uh, to America, I had my wife asked me how it had all gone, and I said, well, it was incredible. It was what I call the miracle at Moscow. I realized that God could still use my skills, and so that was when I started the Assist News Service, which continues today. Uh, it's a free news service. Anybody listening would like a free subscription. It would, uh, you just go to www.assistnews.net. That's assistnews.net, one word, .net. And uh, you can sign up. It's free. And that's where we got to know each other, Jason, because then I, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith very kindly gave me a radio show on K-Ray where you were working, and I believe you were my first sound engineer. And we worked together for, I believe, a couple of years on this program, and it continues today. I've been doing it for 12 years now. That's an amazing story. One question I had, which is almost more of a curiosity for me, what was Assist News like before the Internet? Well, we tried to do, it was pretty, that was a very good question. Because there wasn't the internet then, we had to use what was called fax broadcasting. 
And in those days, um, you were either sent it out by mail, these were the stories that we do, or you had to have a little bit of technology, which meant you could feed your list into a, a bit of software, and it would try and send out the stories via fax. The only problem was that the fax machines were pretty unpredictable. It could take you days to get out maybe 20 stories. You know, it was, it was terrible. And so when the internet came along, this was just a godsend for us because we can get our stories out in an instant. We send them out now to about 2,000 Christian media and secular media around the world. And, um, you know, I've been working on a story today. It's gone out now. It took about 10 seconds to go to uh, all these 2,000 media outlets. Uh, You know, it's just amazing. So that was one of the greatest breakthroughs we've ever had. Well, to backtrack a little bit and talk a little bit more about Moscow, what year were you in Moscow? 1992. And uh, one of the things that happened, uh, which I I didn't mention earlier, but was very revolutionary for me, was that um, I I was always very interested in the plight of uh, Christians who had been arrested in Russia during those days, and one of them was a man called Alexander Ogorodnikov. And Alexander had found the Lord after watching a film about the life of Christ. And he started a Bible study at the Moscow State University and was arrested by the KGB, sentenced to many years in the Gulag, which was where the prison camps were. He was in a city called Perm in Siberia. And um, I got a message from a friend of mine that ran a news service in London who who, uh, spoke Russian fluently. And he sent me a copy of a letter that Alexander had sent to Mikhail Gorbachev, saying, Mr. Gorbachev, I'm a Christian, I'm in the Gulag. I have not received one letter. I have not received one visit from a Christian. And I just want to go home to be with Jesus. So would you please have me executed by firing squad? And uh, I, uh, I can be home with Jesus. I don't want to commit suicide. I feel that's wrong. And I got a copy of the letter, and I happened to be going on a TBN TV program. Uh, and uh, I, I mentioned the story, and I got the address of the labor camp. And so I asked the viewers to send letters to me, and I would forward them to Alexander in the labor camp. And uh, we wanted him to know that he was not forgotten. Well, when I heard about going to Moscow, I managed to track him down. I found out that Mrs. Thatcher had actually read the story about Alexander, and she'd gone over to Moscow, and she'd asked Mr. Gorbachev to set him free. And she was a scary lady, so he didn't say no. So he'd been free. He was working at a home for battered women in Moscow. So I got a message to him, and I said, look, I'm coming over to Moscow to work with Billy Graham. I'd love to meet with you. And so the very first morning I'm in the, in the hotel there, I get a message from the, the front desk saying there's a gentleman here who wants to meet with you and I go down and there is Alexander Oradnikov. We've got people praying for him, we've got people writing letters and there I was meeting him, he had granny glasses and baby tail, didn't look like anything like a dissident and we all sat down with the Billy Graham team and he shared his testimony with them and it was extraordinary and then he said to me did you ask people to pray for me? And I said, yes. He said, well, let me tell you what happened. He said, when all these letters began arriving, they would take me into a room and I would see all these mail sacks there of, of mail. 
and they would tell me they were from people in the United States. And then as a punishment, they would take me to a cell. They would remove most of my clothes so I would be freezing. And it would be like a block of ice in there. And I would start to shiver. I would get, um, you know, I just feel so bad. And I knew I was dying. And then he said, I believe that someone who had seen me on TV, I started to pray, and that prayer reached through the iron curtain, through the barbed wire, through the, the bars of his cell, where he was literally dying, and God became his comforter, and suddenly he came to his body, and his life was saved, and he said, that happened several times. And then he just looked at me, and he said, thank you for caring. And I, it just about broke me up. I was in tears when he said that. But it made me realize how we could make a difference in the lives of people maybe we'd never heard of before. And that's what we try and feature on the new service. You know, uh, a lot of people my age who grew up in the 80s and early 90s Remember, the political climate worldwide, especially in Moscow, was was so thick um, around the Cold War. What was it like being right there just after the collapse? Well, it was it was chaotic. You know, the the, the sort of mafia were taking over. Uh, there was a lot of killings going on. Some of the Billy Graham team members had to have uh, bodyguards with them because of. Uh, the possibility of being killed by these gangsters. Uh, and, but what was so extraordinary was that on the uh, first night, we're in this huge, uh, it was the Indoor Olympic Stadium. Jimmy Carter had banned uh, the U.S. Olympic team from going there uh, because the Russians had invaded Afghanistan. And so um, uh, we were in one of the buildings that was built for the Olympics. And on the very first night, I couldn't believe it, the uh, Russian uh, Red Army Choir, that was the propaganda choir for the for communism, uh, came on to the floor and they began singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Glory, glory, hallelujah. You know, I mean, it was just incredible. I was videoing it and uh, I got goosebumps as I was thinking how incredible that this communist propaganda choir was singing literally a gospel song. And then on the final night, uh, Jason, uh, one of the speakers was um, Joni Erickson Tarder, who you know is a, is a quadriplegic. And she'd been sitting with about 500 people in wheelchairs. And what happened was that um, she was suddenly taken and she came on the stage and she gave her testimony, especially to the disabled people there. And she also uh, was being interpreted by a blind, uh, blind man called Igor. And then Mr. Graham, who has Parkinson's disease, sort of shuffled up to the stage and then preached the sermon of his life, and thousands gave their lives to Christ. And as I was standing by the media table in the middle of all this, and people actually were running, not just walking, they were running to the front and kneeling to give their lives to Christ. It was incredible. A, a pastor there, who was a Calvary Chapel pastor, looked at me and he said, I can't believe this. And he started to cry. And I said to him, look, you come here every night and you cry. I'm sick of it. <laughs> and he laughed. He said, well, just think what just happened. God has just used a cripple, a blind man, and an old guy with Parkinson's disease to reach Russia with the gospel. And I thought, wow, I've got no excuse. If people with those disabilities are willing to serve the Lord, who am I to ever argue? What a, it was an extraordinary experience. Wow. That just goes to show you because how many people 
now think, well, you know, I just, I can't serve the Lord. I can't possibly, I'm not able. But yeah, what a great testimony that is. It's, it's amazing. I mean, uh, Mr. Graham, I worked with him later in, uh, in Essen, Germany, and also in uh, Puerto Rico, San Juan. And I knew firsthand his illness, you know, his, the, he would shake a lot. But somehow, when he got up to speak, he was a transformed person. God somehow helped him through it. And I just saw the great miracles of uh, changed lives through a man called Billy Graham. Because of my relationship with the Graham team, uh, I got invited to Pat Nixon's funeral at the Richard Nixon Library in Yorba Linda here in California. Uh, and i never forget it. Um, uh, I was invited to be part of the Billy Graham crew there, and after the Billy had done the funeral uh, and, and spoken, we were all invited to go into a room where Richard Nixon was, was talking. I walked in, and there were all of the Watergate conspirators in the room. It was amazing. And then uh, Richard Nixon said, uh, now I want all of you to come and I want to talk to every one of you. And so within a few minutes, uh, along with my friend uh, Larry Ross, who was Billy's press officer then, we had 10 minutes of talking face-to-face with Richard Nixon. I mean, what an amazing... And I couldn't believe that I was talking to Nixon, and I didn't quite know what to say. And I finally said, Mr. Nixon, I'm a Christian, and I'd like you to know that I've been praying for you. And he started... A tear came to his eye, you know, he was heartbroken, losing his wife. And a year later, he died. And I also went to the funeral again with Billy Graham at the same place and stood next to five American presidents. So that was an amazing experience. So if any of you are listening and you would like to know more about uh, persecuted Christians and what's going on in the world, again, it's free. Just go to Assist News, A-S-S-I-S-T News. Net, and you can scroll down and there's a place where you can sign up. There's no catch. Nobody will come and hit you up for anything. Uh, and you will start getting these stories into your inbox. And uh, we'd like you to pray for these people we write about. And this is the way you can play a great role in maybe changing history. One of the big stories that we have been featuring is the story of a lady called Asya Bibi. Uh, Asya Bibi is a Pakistani Christian mother of five, and some years ago, she, you know, she's illiterate, she didn't read or write, and she was working uh, on a farm picking berries with her Muslim uh, friends then, at least she thought they were friends, and she was asked to go and collect some water from the local well because it was very hot. Uh, and so Asiya Bibi went and picked up the, the water, she took a bucket and she had a little cup with that, and on the way back she took a sip of water. When she got back, they found out that she had taken a sip from their water. And they turned on her, and they accused her of uh, being an infidel. Uh, she really shouldn't, as a Christian, have taken the same water as the Muslims. And they got into quite a discussion, and she finally said, well, let me say something. You know, the person I follow, Jesus Christ, um, he died on the cross for all of our sins. What did you need to do? He's dead. Well, that didn't go down well at all. She got beaten up by the people. But that wasn't enough. She was then charged with blasphemy in in Pakistan. She was then hauled before the judge and sentenced to be hung. 
and she's now on death row in Pakistan and at the moment she's trying to appeal her sentence but she's been on death row for more than five years now and um, she has to cook her own food in case someone poisons her. She has to have armed guards protecting her on death row because of the many threats against her life. And so we ask you to pray for her. The spelling is Asia, A-S-I-A. And then her second name is Bibi, B-I-B-I. And she is someone we would ask you to pray that God will amazingly intervene in this awful case and that she will be freed. Then she'll be able to leave the country because it's too dangerous for her to live there. And she's been offered sanctuary, believe it or not, in Paris, France, where the mayor of Paris believes that this lady is a real hero. And so they've offered her asylum if she can get free. But we need to pray that she will be released very soon. Now, in that country, does what kind of rights does she have? Almost no rights. If you're a Christian there, it's a predominantly Muslim country. It's called the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. And, uh, you know, really, if you're a Christian and you get charged with blasphemy, very few people ever survive that. And if they are freed, quite often they're executed by Muslim mobs as they're leaving the, uh, the courthouse. And so, you know, she faces a terrible situation where Christians are treated really less than dogs. I mean, it, it's an awful situation there. We will definitely pray. Thank you, Dan Wooding, International Man of Ministry. Check out assistnews.net, where you can read about our brothers and sisters all over the world. Assist, aid to special saints in strategic times, works to spread awareness about revolutionary followers of Jesus all over the world. I make it a habit to visit assistnews.net every day. The stories are over for this episode. But that doesn't mean it has to end. Find more at talesoftherevolution.com. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, BeyondPod, Play.fm, and more. Each episode is also available on YouTube. Just go to talesoftherevolution.com and click the YouTube icon on the right-hand side. And remember, I want to hear your story. Send me a message at facebook.com slash tales of the revolution or just shoot me an email jason at tales of the This episode was entitled International Man of Ministry. Until next time, live the revolution. <laughs>